Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how an author can take worlds like ballet and cheerleading, which many of us relegate to the domain of girlish fantasy, and use those worlds to spotlight the sometimes deadly defects of life in the patriarchy. I remember when Megan Abbott's thriller, You Will Know Me, came out in 2016. It's the story of a 15-year-old's gymnastics prodigy and Olympics hopeful, told from the perspective of her mother. There's a violent death at the center of the story, but its focus is the realm of competitive gymnastics and its effects on girls and their families. The book got great reviews that would quote lines from the book like, That was what gymnastics did. It aged girls and kept them young forever at the same time. So, of course, you know, I ran out and got it, and I have since read it more than once. It is a great example of a character-driven thriller that's infused with ideas. I read Megan's book, Dare Me, too. It's about a violent death and a competitive cheerleading squad. When I saw that she has a new thriller out, The Turnout, about sisters running a ballet studio, I was so excited about the possibility that she might want to come talk to us on the podcast about her work. I was too. I love learning about worlds that feel enclosed or invisible to outsiders. I'm fascinated by professional activities like gymnastics and dance that require extraordinary levels of dedication and excellence. And as you know, feminism is my jam. So so talking to (laughs) Megan was pretty much a trifecta of personal obsessions. So let's tell you a little bit more about Megan and then get right to our interview. Megan Abbott is the Edgar winning author of the novels, The Turnout, Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Fever, Dare Me, The End of Everything, Bury Me Deep, Queen Pin, The Song Is You, and Die a Little. Megan's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times Magazine, and The Believer. Her work has won or been nominated for the CWA Steel Dagger, the International Thriller Writers Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and five Edgar Awards. Wow. I know, it's astonishing. (laughs) And that's not all. Formerly a staff writer on HBO's David Simon show, The Deuce, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal, Megan is now co-creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the show Dare Me, which was based upon her novel for USA Network and internationally Netflix. At the start of our conversation with Megan, I painted a bit of a picture of myself as a wee child. Here it is. You have written three books featuring girls in worlds that focus intensely on their physicality worlds of gymnastics, ballet, and cheerleading. I feel the need to say that you could not have found a less coordinated, less athletic girl than yours truly, Julie Sternberg, circa 1978. And yet, I took gymnastics and ballet, and I longed to be a cheerleader, although I was smart enough not to disgrace myself by trying out. So, Can we talk a little about why those three worlds held such appeal for so many girls of our generation? And do you think the appeal of any of them has changed for girls today? 
First, I'll say you have some competition for the <laughs> That was definitely me. And certainly one of the reasons I think I've always been drawn to it is my sort of complete capacity to have any control over my body. <laughs> um, I always marveled at it. But I do think now there are a lot more options. But when I was coming up, I mean, there wasn't even soccer for girls when I was a little kid. There were very few activities that were for girls. Um, And certainly sort of cheer and dance. And then for the sort of more ambitious um, gymnastics were sort of realms where you get to do stuff. Um, But I also think they sort of uniquely about being a girl or woman, which is why I think they have changed quite a bit. Um, There are fields where you're expected to be aggressive and competitive and ferociously dedicated. And and that's exactly what you're supposed to hide (laughs) in your performance of it. You know, you're supposed to be smiling and not showing an ounce of sweat or exertion. And as a girl being perky and bouncy and bubbly in the case of cheer and to a certain extent, gymnastics and in ballet to be sort of graceful and serene and pristine. And, and I think all these are changing and we sort of see some of it, in terms of body type expectations and these things. But I still think they hold for a lot of us. So there's sort of contradictions of being a, a girl or woman. There's sort of the romanticized idea we have of the artists pushing themselves, pushing through pain. That's true in sports, too. We always still tend to glamorize. Um, and that, that's hard to get away from. And that's why I think that with a very high profile athlete like Simone Biles or something, They're the ones that need to sort of take the stand to make us look at this um, because they have the podium. Yeah. Um, The settings that you create are unique and vivid. I'm thinking of the gym and you will know me and the ballet studio and the turnout, the coach's house and dare me. They share sort of an oppressive quality, I think, that's perfectly suited to psychological thrillers, which got me thinking about an oppressive quality to the three worlds, you know, of competitive gymnastics, ballet, and cheerleading. And I wondered whether the particular quality of oppressiveness in your chosen setting ever reflected the particular form of oppressiveness of the sport that you're addressing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I often hothouse is the word that, that comes up with my books because they tend to be set in hothouses of one kind or another. Um, and that probably comes from noir, which is still an influence on my work because they tend to be in these sort of very tight, confined spaces or f- spaces that are made to feel that way, even mm-hmm. if they aren't. It certainly helps for suspense and mood. The other feature with these hothouse places, other than that they're sort of claustrophobic, and that they're very insular and they kind of make their own rules. So the justice system and ethics and law, like they, they tend to be have their own version of all of that, and they don't abide necessarily by the larger culture and its values. And so that really interests me um, how those communities operate the dysfunction created by them, but they come in these microcosms of the larger culture in that way. Um, And certainly all the issues in ballet and cheer and gymnastics also reflect the larger cultural anxieties too, but in in micro forms, therefore heightened intensity. (laughs) 
Megan is so good at exploring how these worlds are microcosms of cultural issues and how the issues just get amped up in these worlds. Yeah. Think about girls and their bodies and sexuality at this sort of adolescent age when the girls are on these teams, right? Like the onset of sexuality for all girls can be so fraught and and often frightening. But when you take that and then you put them in a competitive arena like gymnastics and ballet, the onset of sexuality can mean a kind of death, right? It's a death knell. Um, when you start to develop hips and breasts, you're not going to be able to compete possibly at the same level. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think that's absolutely true. Right. And then she, you know, Megan takes this sense of doom and fatality and she amplifies it even more in her books by including a violent death that's connected to sex. I don't know why no one had thought before about a thriller in these kinds of worlds connecting girls and adolescence and sexuality and death, but she has done it more than once and so well. Yeah. It's also interesting to me that, you know, the girls are most competitive in these worlds at an age that's a particular mix for all girls of vulnerability and strength. At this age, all boys and girls alike, you know, they're still children, but they're starting to come into their own. And when you think about gymnastics, and this was tragically true, right, in the recent sexual abuse scandal and for the American gymnastics team, but mm -hmm. these girls are perhaps particularly vulnerable because they're under the care of adults who could prey on them, really. Yeah. And so they're particularly vulnerable and they are also particularly physically strong, at least, like in awe-inspiring ways. Well, and even more than awe-inspiring, a 15-year-old ballet dancer or gymnast can have the physical abilities of an adult in their field and way beyond what most average adults will ever hope to achieve. There's so much cognitive dissonance in being a child with adult abilities and pressures. Mm. And now add in at the same time, gymnastics, ballet, cheerleading, they all involve a literal diminishment of bodies. I mean, gymnasts, as you say, they're trying or hoping to forestall the growth of their breasts and hips. Ballerinas and cheerleaders are usually required to stay below a certain weight. And so they try to remain physically childlike while asking their bodies to perform at an adult level. It's got to be just... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, really intense. And then, of course, this view of bodies also reflects society's view of femininity. You know, in recent years, there seems to be some progress in our thinking about body types. We talked with Megan about this possible shift in society's obsession with women being small and childlike. And here's what she said. It's going away in sort of official capacities. And that's all great. But I do think that it doesn't solve the central problem, um, which is I think our notions of even what ballet is or what sports achievement is are always going to reflect the sort of fissures and problems in the larger culture. And I don't think we're getting get away from any of them. But um, I also think that there's something that's even out of time of some of this stuff. I mean, I don't know if there ever was a time when our relationship to our body was uncomplicated. Our body is something that we have to reckon with, um, even just its decline. Well, and speaking of time and decline, for cheerleading, gymnastics and ballet, by the time you're 20, you're well on your way to aging out of the activity. Do you think the time pressure impacts the culture of these 
different fields? Yeah, I do think um, the sort of dark view of it is that that's part of the beauty of it to us is the notion of it bleeding, that it can't last. And there's a wonderful documentary about Wendy Whalen, the ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. It's called Restless Creature, I believe. Mm -hmm. She was a great big Balanchine New York City ballet star. She was forced into early retirement and then has to undergo these series of surgeries of the damage that ballet has done to her body. And she's a very practical person and she's very stoic and endures it all. But at one point when they told her um, the sort of likely prospects of some of the surgery, she actually says, if I can't dance again, I want to die. That's not the way she talks. She's not a dramatic person, but it's, you know, there is part of that that I think it's a part of the, intoxicating and trancing and dark beauty of it is that this is a thing that cannot last um, like youth itself. We're watching it um, writ large. Yeah. So these three worlds have such a fundamentally tortured and damaging view of female sexuality. Just as one of many, many examples I read in the New York Times a couple of years ago that some professional football teams, while requiring the skimpiest of outfits for cheerleaders on the field simultaneously forbid cheerleaders from being in any quote unquote tasteless films or photos or bikini or swimwear contests off the field. So basically like you must be sexual when cheering, otherwise you must be pure. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about this quagmire of, of views about female sexuality when you're writing your novels? Yeah, I mean, I am sort of fascinated with all of the, the sort of eternal trap that all, all these fields sort of set up for these women and how they navigated or how they put this mask on. And, you know, I always want to give them these sort of fugitive desires that permit them a space. And, and so to some extent, that all three books are about that, about how you get around that, how you hide um, and still get to act on your desires. Um, I almost think, I mean, those, those costumes and all that is camp in the Olympics too, right? The, um, having to sort of show, show your body or, or not show your body. It's like there, you can't win. It's so right. little about sexuality, right? It's all about objectification and being looked at. And I think the more we separate um, stop seeing ourselves as just being seen, but as a wanting person. And I think um, that feels like it's it's changing. Um, and it's always very tricky, uh, but it feels very separate to me. Um, so the mothers in these novels and the mother substitutes, like the coach and Jeremy, theoretically, they should be helpful to the girls when it comes to the sexual craziness of these worlds. But either they try and fail or they make things far worse. Why is that? Yeah, that's what my mom wants to know, too. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of fascinated by the complexities and ambiguities of the mother-daughter relationship that um, I never want to write the mother figure who has no complication and has no desire of her own. I'm far more interested in in our regular lives that aren't sort of a heightened thriller world. You know, the sort of the baggage our mothers carry, they, they, they often, uh, without even knowing it, pass on to us. 
how much that's in every conversation between mothers and fathers is really interesting to me. And then the mother's substitutes that we seek out because of that. And dare me, there is no mother. <laughs> There's no, no parents in that, in the book um, at all. They're sort of so off screen. Um, so that coach becomes a mother, a love object, the person I want to be all at once. And I'm always interested, I guess, in the slipperiness between the women that um, we look at as maternal figures, the women that we look at with desire, or the women that we look at, because that's the person we want to be. It's so interesting to me. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm also interested in the interplay between team unity on the one hand and individual insecurity in these worlds. There's a tension, again, on, on the one hand, we're a unit and we wear these uniforms to show that we go together and you don't belong and we're better than you. But on the other hand, within the group, there's also a constant assessment of, are you still good enough? Do you still belong? How do you rank? In fact, it's often a zero-sum game, right? Because one person's success is often another person's loss. Are these dynamics just a microcosm of the human condition, or do you think these are uniquely toxic environments? Boy, I, I you know, it's so funny. That is the dynamic I keep returning to, too, is that the sort of inherently contradictory nature of that, which is also true in our lives. And especially in America, where the individual and the community each have their whole separate tradition, um, but are very much tied to us being Americans, um, that you're supposed to, it's, it's we the people, but it's also individual achievement and the, the Western hero, um, all these sort of tropes that dominate us. But I suppose I'm particularly interested in how this works with girls and women because girls and women for so long and to a certain extent still aren't supposed to express ambition even, but also feelings of aggression or open competition in, in the larger public. It often takes these sort of far more toxic forms because of that, because they're not allowed to. So they can't just get in the shoving match in the locker room. And I'm using huge gender stereotypes here, but like, let's say guys on a team could just have a shoving match in the, in the locker room. And you know, sometimes that happens with girls, but far more so. It's just, you know, um, bullying or taunting a girl into an eating disorder or any of these sort of things that... Um, under patriarchy, to be quite blunt about it, is what happens the oppressed become oppressor. Mm -hmm. We're often harder on women who are complicit than on men are because we expect more of women. There's kind of no winning in that setup. And that feels like something that maybe it would be more likely to get rid of in our lifetime than some of that. Um, that feels like it's changing or at least swinging hard the other way right now for young people. And maybe, maybe we'll find a nice, a nice middle. I hope so. And I hope it's lasting. Yeah. You have thought so deeply about the pressures on girls in sports, the pressure to win, to be disciplined at all times, to be perfect, to be sexual, but not too sexual, to be nice and a ferocious competitor, you know, to have it all appear effortless. I'd love to hear your reaction to recent moments when women athletes like tennis star Naomi Osaka and gymnast Simone Biles have said, you know what, I am not okay. Like the toll is too great. I am taking myself out, at least for now. Yeah, boy, it was fascinating. I I followed both those stories, especially the Simone Biles, because I'd written about gymnastics in that term. She used the twisties 
it's a word I knew very well. Um, and it's sort of that when you know, when you know you've lost your cent- your center and that you will, you will definitely fall. You will probably break your neck. I mean, one of the things I'm always interested in these small worlds, they also have their own language and the way they talk about things. And, and, and everyone in gymnastics knows how dangerous the twisties are. But in the larger culture, at least for some responses in the moment, was, this is like a silly thing. This is just a t- toughen up. These millennials and Gen Zers, when they're, you know, they're so precious. Like all of that was appalling to watch, I thought. These people, none of whom have ever put their life at risk in Anyway, um, are saying to this young woman that us watching you fall and break your neck is is more important than you saving your own life by knowing you have to exit the situation. And I mean, that felt for in terms of mental health felt like a huge leap um, from where we were thirty or forty years ago. But she still had to fight a lot even from professionals, sports, broadcast, you know, and other athletes, I was sort of stunned at how much blowback she got, even though I do think it was overwhelmed by the, the positive response. And same for Naomi Osaka. In that case, too, the, the presenting her as the problem child, she always has something. I mean, that that's just unbelievably arrogant to me and and cruel um but i think the outrage against that response felt productive and and it feels like at least there's a dialogue about it that may move us um towards progress yeah it's so interesting you mentioned the power of language and just the word twisties it's such a silly little girl word right it doesn't sound like a, a serious possibly lethal thing the language itself is disempowering. The language itself reduces the likelihood of being taken seriously. Right, right. And and actually on the inside, what it is, is it's trying to take some of its power away by giving it that name. And, the, you know, baseball, there's a version of it called the Yips, which is also a silly name. It's sort of like a mind over matter situation so much of it is about like fight, but beating off the superstition that will actually make you put yourself in danger. Got it. Yeah. You've been doing a lot of acclaimed writing for television recently. Do you find that writing for film is changing the way that you think about story at all? God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're so different. I mean, I've been shocked at how different they are. And I think they have different demands. I mean, it's all structure in TV and film writing. One of the fun things is like fitting in everything you want, knowing how little time and space you have to tell the story and you can't get into the heads of anybody you have you know it's a completely different set of tools one of the things that was amazing to me is that it would you know 10 or 20 pages in a book to try to get the reader to understand this character and one push in with the camera uh no dialogue and the actress giving it everything and that with, with the right music and the right color and uh, did everything you needed to know about that character um so there's a so they're really different in that way mm-hmm I know you've worked with Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Deuce mm-hmm. and then more unknown actresses, right? In the TV um, version of Dare Me. I just wonder whether there's anything that you learn. I don't know. Yeah. I just want to ask you about Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, they all have different approaches. And Maggie Gyllenhaal was so amazing to watch on set because she would do 
to take so completely differently. She could be wildly different and the whole tone would shift of the scene. And and uh, so it's that feels in some ways a lot like with the younger actors. Um, you're trying to get this lightning in a bottle in that case because she can just go back to one of those versions and, and, and do it again. Or she can push everybody into this great new place. But with the younger actor, they don't have control over it in that way. Mm-hmm. But there's things their faces can do because there's, they're so green and they can still show all this wonder that is is just staggering and on the other hand we had some character actors on that show and many of the dudes and you can give them three pages three page speech it can be midnight when you start shooting the scene you can be in one case in a hundred degrees and you're in this bar and they're on to have all the lights on them and they can do your three pages without dropping a word over and over again for two hours Mm. you're that much in control of it wow it's always amazing to watch somebody who's really good at something do the thing they're good at. Can I ask, how did you end up on the writing team for The Deuce? I understand Dare Me, you know, yeah. you wrote the novel, but how did The Deuce happen? David Simon and George Pelicano, I knew them both a little bit. I knew George better, but they, um, David almost always hires novelists. So, and given the subject of The Deuce, which is about, prostitution and porn I think thankfully they saw that we may need some women (laughs) (laughs) they were looking for female crime novelists they asked if I would be interested Lisa Lutz is another crime writer she and I were the women in the room at the start and and it was a relief in some ways um, because we had a reason. We, had a, we always should have a reason to be there. Women shouldn't have to argue to be in the room, but but there was a real reason that we needed to be there mm. because we needed to speak for these women, and they wanted to hear her. I think I might have a new dream. Tell me. <laughs> I want to write a show about porn and prostitution that stars Maggie Gyllenhaal. Is oh. that so much to ask? No, I want you. I want that for you. I want you, your I, dream to come true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I recognize that it's already been done and done well, but you know, maybe I just want to be Megan. But on the other hand, it is so hard to do what she does with her thriller writing, taking these worlds that we see in one way and then sort of twisting them up a bit and amplifying society's ills and the process and coming up with atmospheric, you know, thought-provoking stories that are really hard to put down. Okay. (laughs) I might not be able to be Megan. I might just have to read Megan, which Mm. I'll take. It's a gift. I'm I'm grateful for it. Yes. And I definitely share your sense of, God, I wish I could do that. (laughs) Not just about Megan, but also about dancers and gymnasts. It's amazing to me what they can do with their bodies. I feel like I had a taste of what it must be like when I was an opera singer, actually, to be able to use my body as an instrument, to literally fill my body with sound was an experience that is, at least for me, impossible to replicate any other way. And it is, it's an ecstatic experience. It can be. And dancers are using every part of their bodies all the way to their, the tips of their fingers and toes to make art. I can only imagine how exhilarating that can feel. There is one beginner Zumba class that I'm able to keep up with. And it is a great great feeling. It is a great feeling. Go you. (laughs) Yeah, that is art. 
that is all I have to say about the exhilaration of dance. (laughs) And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Megan at www.meganabbott.com and on Twitter at Megan Abbott. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.